Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Did you see what I put up, that definition of rhapsody? A rhapsody is a piece of music, a form of epic poetry that can be recreated. A wandering tale of instrumental composition that is unlimited in form. The rhapsody is, uh, in the definition that I found, was very similar to a lot of fish music. A one-movement work that is episodic yet integrated, free-flowing in structure, featuring a range of highly contrasted moods, color, and tonality. An air of spontaneous inspiration and a sense of improvisation make it freer in form than a set of variations. So, I mean, that really, I mean, it seems like a lot of fish songs to me. I mean, they're coming up with these little wonderful places to land, going to the next wonderful place. That's the voice of Don Hart, the composer and arranger who you may know from his work with Trey, most recently composing the string arrangements for the Rescue Squad section during the Beacon Jams. Trey and Don have been collaborating since 2004, when Trey conducted the Nashville Chamber Orchestra at Bonnaroo, introducing the 90,000 people in attendance to this new take on classical music. In this episode, we're going to hear Don and fellow classical musician and fish fan Drew Hits and get both of their takes on the innovation, inspiration, and timelessness of some of Fish's early compositions. Last week, we explored the evolution of the song David Bowie, while comparing Fish's rise to other American bands that emerged in the 80s. We heard Dave and Brian talk about how David Bowie helped shape Fish's growth, strengthening their musical direction and style. Fish loves playing their early compositional works. They seem to cause their creative spirit to emerge and fuel the live adventure for the members and audience alike. 
These heavily composed songs that were created early in Fish's career have stood the test of time, becoming sought-after rhapsodies for all of us. And although these songs have been around for decades, they are living and evolving, never sticking exactly to the same script, but continuing to push the art forward. We're going to explore a few of these songs with Don and Drew, starting with Divided Sky. I'm Don Hart. And my name is Andrew Hitz. As we mentioned, Don is a composer and arranger and one of Trey's musical collaborators. Drew is a Fish historian, active contributor to Fish.net, a tuba player, Mike's song activist, and a member of the board of directors of the Mockingbird Foundation, a nonprofit organization run by Fish fans that funds music education for young kids across the country. The Junta album, it's, it's, it's incredible how many really intricate and involved pieces are on one album, especially for, in terms of like a major release, a first album for, uh, for a band. Trey remarked that David Bowie was him trying to see how complex he could make music while people still danced to it. And between David Bowie and Divided Sky and You Enjoy Myself, and they weren't all written at the exact same time, but it was all in those early years. What was it about those early years that produced these songs like Divided Sky that remains so enduring? Divided Sky is one of those songs that really hits listeners to fish when they are first introduced on a number of levels. And I know as a classical musician, when I heard this, I was a music major in college and uh, the the scope of it, like, I mean, it's just an, it's an enormous piece of music with multiple sections. Uh, the, the jam section uh, builds and is a great example of tension and release, which Fish is obviously famous for. There's a lot of mixed meter things. It's like it's a massive composition that they make look really easy. I have a vivid memory of driving on Interstate 80. Actually, I was riding. My father was driving on my way to college one year going back, and I was listening to Divided Sky. I had only been a fish fan for maybe a year and a half, but I had heard Divided Sky a hundred times, two hundred times, and I all of a sudden started counting along with the meters that were happening underneath it, and I had the whole song memorized and could and could play air drums or air guitar perfectly with it in sync the entire time, but I had never realized how complex what was happening underneath actually was. And that was a real moment for me, but it, it, I, it, there were many listens that happened before I got a full grasp of actually what was happening. The melodies, which are so beautiful and elegant and feel so simple, are not simple. The that's two measures of three and then two measures of four. But a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, da 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 That's not normal. So and for and it flows beautifully with with two measures of three, two measures of four, two measures of three, two measures of four. It's, it's not easy to write music that's that complex that is also that melodically elegant, and Trey uh, and company did that. 
that section of the, the two measures of three and two measures of four are followed by a 12-8 section. Well, then one, two, one, two, three, four. And so then it's like a 6-8 bar with like a 2-4 and then a 4-4. Four, four. I mean, you can write it in a number of ways, but it's uh, there are lots of fish fans who are not professional musicians who can sing along with all of that, I bet, perfectly and have no idea what is going on, which I think is a testament to the writing and the playing. Trey learned about these particular melodies from studying different forms of Indian music. When he writes things that are in different time signatures, and no matter how complex it gets, it always boils down to combinations of twos and threes. You know, da 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 you know, or da 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 You know, and they can have like 13, 17, whatever, you know, beats in the measure, and it all boils down to some combination of twos and threes. Basically, what he's why he's doing that is for simplicity's sake. I mean, if you try to remember counting out 13 beats in something, it, it, it's so much easier to go whatever combination of twos and threes that is, you know, or or even just seven, for example. You know, if you instead of trying to count out seven each time, that can kind of get into a groove. But it's a lot better if you go two, two, and three. You know, da 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 da. You know, and it just flows. Anyway, that's just a uh, inside tip there. <laughs> Trey um, just have, has this incredible knack for writing a hooky melody. <laughs> it's just it's just unbelievable. I mean, you know, I mean, this is later stuff, but, you know, for example, when I was working on Petrichor, that last section in Petrichor, I would be working on different things, you know, kind of going in and out of working on the arrangement, and it, it just it was so accessible. I mean, you know, I could always think about it if I, if I wanted to just take a break and think about what I was going to do you know and, and so many of his melodies are like that when he introduces that melody you were just singing drew you know in, in that slow section with the undulating you know accompaniment underneath it's just stated so plainly at that point then he takes it and you know brings the tempo up and does all sorts of other different things with it but it's a it's a great melody to start with i've tried to arrange bad things bad music before it's much better to arrange good good music <laughs> All of those pieces are different uh, and are, are each quite unique. However, there's I think there's a common thread through almost all of them on that album. Dinner in a Movie is another one where they're just fluffhead, just amazingly complex pieces that uh, are are quite an undertaking in the studio, but to do to do in concert on a regular basis, and this was thrown in between uh, hard rock covers and vacuum solos, and uh, you know it was it it kind of set the the tone early on that Fish was not about one thing, that uh, they were about eight things, and that that 
if I had to boil it down to one thing, it was that that there was no thing, <laughs> if you will. You know, I mean, like you just you truly never had any idea. That was something that really hit me at my first show, New Year's '93. Was that in my first set? I saw Llama, which is a, a pretty straight ahead, minus the lyrics, is a pretty straight ahead rocking tune. I saw a a, a bluegrass cover. Um, there was the, that night. I saw there was an, an acapella, Amazing Grace. There was, I mean, there was just so such broad. Uh, offerings musically that night that it it really was unlike anything I had ever heard and I think this was the beginning of them early on they were a cover band as I I pretty much all bands are at first they were it was pretty much all covers and then this was when they started to really start to write their own music and it's remarkable that this was really the very beginning of their foray into writing their own songs and that they are songs that we are talking about at length on a podcast in 2021 and and not just because it's early but because they're important and because they're huge and because they're canonical There are lots of moments at fish shows that highlight the strong communication between the band and the audience, where the buildup of energy is mutual, and as always, there's a resolution that brings joy and sometimes tears to everyone in attendance. The pinnacle of this, of course, is the extended pause in Divided Sky. It also has the the very, the rubato part where now there's like the long pause before the last note, which there's a little bit of audience interaction there with Trey, where for a long time he would wait for three crowd roars before he would play that that last note. Uh, and you could always see him take a breath. And then like on the exhale was when he would play that that note and then they would go on. Uh, and then the, you know, the, the culmination of Divided Sky is just straightforward 4-4, four, four, eight-bar phrases with just, just nothing complex at all. It's just incredible tension and release and the, the band all building to a climax with Trey soaring above and everybody doing their thing, uh, which is interesting because the beginning is so complex and then the end is just, is just what, you know, what a lot of bands try to do. They just do it better than everybody else. That's a pretty good equation for an emotional experience. Canonical? You, you have all that complexity at the beginning and then you release with with the quiet, reverent section in the middle, and then you just roar out to the end. You know, it's an emotional ride. With the help of some research, to my knowledge, the first live pause between the note in Divided Sky was on July 19, 1991. The average pause length is 35 seconds, and the longest pause was over three minutes on December 2, 2009. The crowd can be louder during these pauses than at any other time during a show. Trey waits until he feels the energy is flowing correctly between the audience, himself, and heaven before hitting that one amazing note. The piece overall, it's not an ABA form, but it, it sort of resembles one in a way because you have the quieter section in the middle and the outside, outside pieces are uh, a little more rambunctious. Um, 
there, there's form-wise, it, it compares to a standard form in classical music. It would be a, you know, state, statement, new, new theme, and then uh, come back to that original statement. Well, I had mentioned the uh, the opening feeling like a fanfare. A fanfare, I think, is basically a way of musically announcing something, and that's kind of what the the opening feels like to me. In terms of the versions of Divided Sky from the 1980s, which I think people would find interesting, the the very first performance is, of course, noteworthy, which is 5.11.87. It's at least the first known performance. Uh, and it's noteworthy because it's only four and a half minutes long, and it is missing multiple sections. There's a very brief jam that's in a different place than usual, uh, but the entire jam section as we know it today is completely not there. It also ends by them playing the intro through the lyrics, just like they did at the top, and the whole thing was four and a half minutes long. Divided sky the windows first full-length standout version, I would say, is uh, September 24th, 1988. In a lot of ways, 1988 is where you really start to get extended jams that directly resemble the improvisational musical conversations that the band still has to this day. This 924-88 version, for example, uh, at one point, Trey and Fishman are playing a dotted quarter rhythm that they are riffing off of, which I, I believe Fishman starts and and Trey latches onto. Mike is seamlessly going from aligning rhythmically with Fishman to doing what he does best, which is then uh, matching the busyness briefly of Trey's solo and then going back to his more traditional role with the bass. And then there's a, a moment where Trey and Paige are riffing on uh, just running 16th notes together later in the jam. Again, 1988 was the year when I think that they really started to, to have conversations like they do today and have ever since. Their their communication just really jumped up a level and there's lots of side conversations happening at once. The really impressive thing about Fish as a chamber ensemble is that they are able to all be playing assertively individually at the same time and yet they always have their ears open to be having a conversation with someone else they can also be having a conversation with one of the members and then suddenly be hearing the other. They're, they're very good at keeping all their ears on others while also playing with exclamation points rather than with question marks. And early Fish is, uh, well, like all early bands, there's like there's kind of a lot of playing near each other. And, it, and there's gr- it's great. It's very obvious that they are great individually and collectively. But for my ears, it's 1988 where something really clicks where those conversations 
stations start to go from just a really good band to like, wait a minute, what is this? And then they they continued to develop uh, in a lot of ways, obviously, to this day. remember on the earliest recorded version of Divided Sky, Trey used a strange little instrument which was a small rack of shiny metal pipes which rang like bells when he hit them. Those were the initial notes of the song that are now played by Paige McConnell on piano. Trey called this section log at first before adding the vocals to it. For percussion, he was hitting a piece of wood he found in his dad's yard. We wrote the words on a sculpture titled New Piece that was created in 1966 by the abstract visual artist Tony Smith. The obsidian rhomboid solid, which we call the rhombus, is now on the grounds of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. One day above us in the fog, a strange effect from malfunctioning lighting on the nearby clock tower caused a dividing of light and dark splitting the sky above us. We began drumming on the rhombus until our hands were sore, repeating the words, divided sky, the wind blows high. We need a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Songs and Slopes from Upslope Brewing. In this segment, we recommend music for you to check out and pair it with an Upslope beverage. This week, since we're discussing three formative fish compositions from 1986 to 1988, I thought it'd be great to pair an album from that time with an Upslope beverage. This week, we have myself, Brian, and my co-host, Matt Dwyer, pairing brews and tunes for you. I'm going to pick the passion fruit and mango spiked snowmelt, and I am pairing this with Bob Dylan's 1986 album, Knocked Out Loaded. The fresh and bright tropical fruits in the seltzer will shock and awe your taste buds, and the electrolytes infused from scratch labs will replenish you after a nice run, maybe an afternoon mowing of the lawn, or even a hike along the front range. Similarly, Dylan's Knocked Out Loaded showcases his best effort in three years, pairing excellent songs like They Killed Him, Drifting Too Far From Shore, and the epic Brownsville Girl with gated drums, blues riffs, and a clear direction which points towards his late career peaks to come. Upslope's passion fruit and mango spiked snowmelt is an unexpected burst of energy and refreshment, while Dylan's Knocked Out Loaded is a kind of surprise gem one needs to make their way through his 80s output. Matt, what are you going to share with our listeners? Thanks, Brian. This week, I'm listening to the Bruce Springsteen album Tunnel of Love and pairing it with the Upslope India Pale Ale. 
This album, which was released in 1987 and followed on the heels of Bruce's commercial peak in Born in the USA, was praised at the time of its release, but soon became known as being dated for its very 80s sound. Remember the joy of finding a cold IPA on lot at a fish show back in the day before breweries were pushing the limits of bitterness and coming up with all sorts of crazy IPA concoctions? Just as Tunnel of Love has now become known as the masterpiece that launched a thousand heartland rock bands in the 21st century, the Upslope IPA is a throwback to an old, reliable taste. Drink in the memories as you take in classic tracks like Tougher Than the Rest, Brilliant Disguise, and the amazing title track from The Boss. Thanks for listening to this edition of Songs and Slopes. We'll catch you next time. Is there a fish song that better encapsulates the band than You Enjoy Myself? There's a good reason that when the band closed out their first long chapter in the fall of 2000, they selected You Enjoy Myself as their closing statement. It became the band's defining song by the early 1990s, and it's one you find yourself in the audience longing for. The initial composition weaves through several serene, blissful melodies before building up to a feverish peak, and then drops you face-first into an infectious funk rock jam. There may be no more energetic moment in a fish show than the buildup in this song. You feel like we're all in it together, going up the roller coaster, getting ever closer to the top. The band and the audience moving in unison, and then, with just another moment of anticipation, of waiting, of the entire room jumping up and down in place. We're there. I literally can't imagine fish without you enjoy myself. It embodies everything about them from complex composed sections to the enormous tension and release with the scream leading to the very brief lyrics to the straight ahead groove after the lyrics, except it's actually not straight ahead groove. It just feels like straight ahead groove because it's alternating between seven and eight. And then eventually getting literally to the straight ahead groove with the big tension and release. And then with the antics at the end in the vocal jam. When I played with Trey with the National Symphony at the Kennedy Center a number of years ago, he warned the orchestra in the dress rehearsal that the audience was probably going to scream in the scream portion, which the orchestra does not scream. Don did an amazing job of orchestrating that and the, and the tension release there. It's very different, yet just as effective as the original. But Trey warned the orchestra that there was a good chance that there was going to be yelling 
and he referred to you enjoy myself as he said it is basically the national anthem of fish which i thought was absolutely perfectly summed up and i said i turned to the bass trombonist next to me who was a friend of mine but not a fish fan in particular and i just said that's exactly what it is this is this is like our national anthem and so i i just can't imagine fish without you enjoy myself as an observer late to the party on that i'd say they also balanced that by quirky things that I'm not sure if they knew their audience would get into it or they figured the chances were pretty good. But, you know, the Boy God routine, uh, I mean, just all, all these little things thrown in throughout the, their repertoire, actually. But it gave the fan a chance to just let loose and, and have fun with it. I think there was a good healthy dose of that type of thing as well, which is pretty smart. The first version of which there is a recording is 2386. <laughs> There's so much fluctuation in terms of tempos and feels. It's very obvious that they were a band that worked through all of this stuff live on stage in front of people, which I think is an awesome way to make art rather than to stay behind closed doors until it's fully cooked, which it never really is quite fully cooked, and then you present it. Uh, the, the first version was about uh, 10 beats per minute faster than the second one, which is less than two months later. It also had a much more laid back feel than the second one. So things were changing pretty wildly in, in a lot of ways. So the debut did not have a vocal jam. That uh, The second recorded version, though, 4186, did have a vocal jam, and it's short and wild. And it, it also didn't have the, the pre-vocal jam uh, bass and drums segment, uh, which seems to have been introduced on 32387. It was at a time when they were experimenting with a lot of different things, and that first vocal jam to my ears sounds like it wasn't planned, but it sounds like the, you know, the, the, the lyrics come back and then they just kind of start singing the, the lyrics like really enthusiastically to the point where they're basically screaming the lyrics and then they just start screaming on top of the screaming of the lyrics and it sounds very organic. <laughs> But at that point in their history, you never knew where things were going, like in terms of tempo, feel, where they would extend tunes. It was just a, a lot of experimentation that was done in public in these very small, intimate, supportive performing atmospheres that they had cultivated all over the Northeast. And I'm sure it was an exciting time to be in that band because they could do anything they wanted any given night. And they had crowds that were supportive of that. I think the, the looming thing in the back of my mind was, what am I going to do with a vocal jam for an orchestra? On the simple end of things, I just love the opening melody. You know, after that sort of flourishing introduction, and then you have that page usually takes it, but on the organ maybe, da-da-da-da. You know, it's just beautiful and it relaxing and doesn't give you any hint of where you're, where you're headed. <laughs> I 
I think one of the beautiful things about You Enjoy Myself is that it's a pretty long walk to get to the payout of the big jam section. Uh, it's very similar to, in a lot of ways, to Mahler symphonies. The The end of especially the early Mahler symphonies is this just incredible release that um, makes me think that I can fly. Uh, and but, there's, but part of that is all of the work and the deep listening that goes into it. There's a lot of complexity that happens in the the composed part of You Enjoy Myself, some of which, though, that doesn't sound complex, but it, it still is. Uh, there is a section that's in seven. However, it keeps on shifting the feel. At first, it is two plus two plus three. So it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then it shifts to three plus two plus two. So it's then it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
it's a great example in early fish of everything was on the table with them, not just what they segued into, but where they segued out of. And it, it usually didn't segue. That's the beauty of it is that it, it was, uh, you know, it's not a song like like Tweezer, which was written later, which was kind of made for that purpose. Uh, but it was them just starting to get their legs under them in terms of anything can go anywhere at any time led by any one of the four of them. Another one that I would recommend is uh, 526.89, uh, which there is no bass and drum section, but a tray is absolutely on fire. That one clocks in at just over 20 minutes. Trey is uh, at his 1980s best. Enjoy Myself at this point in their development is some of the earliest explorations with extreme dynamic contrast, where they would come way down at the beginning of Trey's solo, that it would go way up. There are different spots where they would really explore the softs. Something that most young rock bands are missing is exploring the lower dynamic register of like playing softly and uh, music as with everything in life is all about contrast and what makes the loud sound loud in general the the you know the the real softs make the louds really pop even more and this was one of the first pieces where they really started to explore this which ended up peaking in I would say 1994 when they were like the very end of them playing small theaters nothing like the size that they were playing in the 80s but um, but for example you enjoy myself or foam or a number of pieces where the bottom would just completely drop out slave to the traffic light uh, but this was the very first uh, foray that seemed intentional into exploring the softer dynamics one thing, um, a couple times you've mentioned, uh, Andrew, that the, the band was just you know evolving right in front of everybody, and it, it must have felt that because of the time frame involved. But they, they were doing their homework too. I mean, they must have been rehearsed their butts off. Another song that fully captures the early evolution of Fish's music is Foam. Trey introduced sections of what would become Foam as Marijuana Hot Chocolate during a show on April 22nd, 1988 at UVM. Unlike Divided Sky and You Enjoy Myself, Foam is a fun, complex journey, but largely played true to its composition from start to finish without a built-in improv break. Foam is one of the first really complex fish songs that they refined, highly refined, and began to nail 
every single time that they played it. And part of that was just repetition. They performed Foam 31 times in 1989 alone. They played it all the time. And you can really hear how this piece developed. Uh, the the 102988 version, uh, which I believe is the first uh, the first known. Uh, the first performance. There's no jam component at all. Uh, the spot where they uh, where they now sing the the falling into a deep well with the word well being the the downbeat of the initial measure of Page's solo, which becomes Trey's solo, which becomes the whole band composed to the end. They end actually. They just skipped right to the cascading vocal parts at the end, and then the uh, the entertainer tag uh, at the end. things like Trey's opening vocal line uh, is not harmonized, which it, it became harmonized uh, quickly. But then it's pretty cool that we actually have uh, not one but two versions five days later from 11388. There's a sound check version, which we have, and then the version from the actual show. And we can hear how much the, uh, the piece has changed in five days. This is, again, this is a band that was working this all out in front of all of us. And not only that, but they were allowing and encouraging taping. This is the ultimate transparency as artists. And uh, this version had the jam segment as we know it. Page solo, Trey solo, composed band climax uh, to the return to the lyrics. And again, that was five days after the debut and the, the tempo was different. But then uh, you skip to uh, 1989 and by the end of 89, it felt like a fully cohesive song. Uh, the intro was rewritten so that it was just Fishman. Uh, it was starting with, uh, with, I think it was three of them at once, like where the whole band basically would start at the top and now it was just Fishman, and then Mike would come in uh, with the bass part, and then uh, Trey and Paige would come in uh, together. This version uh, at the end of 89 is uh, is almost 200 beats a minute, which is 30 entire clicks faster than the initial versions from the end of 88. And the, the vocal harmonies are much tighter, uh, and there are more of them, and the flow of all of this stuff. This is a piece that is also deceivingly complex. The beginning of that that first foam melody, that second measure is in three for no reason. It's in four and then it's in three. One, two, three, one, two, and then the end of that, there's a, there's a bar of six for no reason. Yeah, I mean, 
smacks to me of, of just ultra hard work. Another thing I want to point out about, I think it's just a, an in, insight into Trey's mind in, in composing, you know, what, what he keeps in mind. I'll just tell you a story about First Tube. The odd phrase where he there's a normal way to finish that phrase with a couple of quarter notes, and he just keeps the, keeps the dotted quarter going through it and lets the band catch up. He once, he, he told me, well, if I just did it the way everybody expected, what's the point? That's what you're seeing in something like foam with those. You say, well, for no reason, they put a bar of three in or a bar of six or whatever. He's just saying, if it's what everybody expects, what's, what's the point? And that's uh, something a, a teacher of mine told me one time. He says, uh, music is drama. If you know where it's going, it's not drama. It's just it's faster. They're matching articulations. They're matching rhythmic interpretation. There's a lot of very high level communication that is going on both in the composed sections and in the improv sections. And I think that this is a great microcosm because we have so much evidence from it early on of how it was being composed before our very eyes. And then within 13 months, how far it had uh, developed technically and artistically. What Don and Drew are describing here, with regard to Fish's communication and precision, is due to their insane dedication to practice. We've talked a lot about this already this season, but it's worth repeating. Songs like Foam bear out this commitment and relentless pursuit of getting better. The Latin aspect of foam also reminded me of like Stash a little bit. I'm not sure when they, when Trey discovered that he could milk different time signatures and, and, and get a lot of mileage out of it, but he never forgot that. I mean, certainly not in, in Time Turns Elastic. And Petrichor to an extent, but not, not as much with that, I guess. The harmonic language, I think with a lot of composers, you, you see little similarities and things, you know, that run through their, their body of work. And I think you do with Trey, but he's never afraid to go out and explore either. Sometimes you know it's the same composer, but you hear him tiptoeing out on that limb and going for something. Foam is like a short, like straight ahead tune that's not at all straight ahead. <laughs> so it's not like a big magnum opus, uh, you know, like with like lots of different uh, distinct sections. So I think that this is kind of a, a different animal compared to Divided Sky and You Enjoy Myself. So there's a lot of overlap there. And yet it's I think it's a different exercise in songwriting. The other piece that it reminds me of is uh, Stravinsky's Petrushka, uh, which there there is a lot of time changes, meter changes in Petrushka that don't feel like meter changes, and that's because the musical phrasing is so strong. The sense of melody is so strong that what's going on underneath it, even though that is complex if you watch the conductor, uh, it, it doesn't sound like it's complex. And Fishman is just an entire percussion section. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and that's just like this bed of, of movement, of... of just flow forward, you know what he does. I don't know. It's it, it's amazing, but you know, no no two and four about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're they're in there someplace, but.
<laughs> Every member of Fish is able to play incredibly busy composed parts and make them sound simple and also is able to improvise by playing a ton of notes and yet not have it sound too busy and that's one thing to accomplish on the piano or the guitar is that's difficult but on the bass and the drums it's very difficult because it is it's very easy to abandon your key role as the rhythm section of a four-piece group by being too busy by playing the bitar as people do you know uh, derisively call it uh, you know when uh, when you're playing a, a, the bass like it's the guitar just down uh, you know an octave or two and w- muddy but Mike and Fishman are both able to play a ton of notes and yet they never abandon their role as the rhythm section and all of this complex stuff uh, could not happen without John Fishman all of it yem divided sky foam uh, dinner and a movie fluffhead all of it uh, not that any of the rest of them are in any way expendable or interchangeable with lots of other people but the stuff that John Fishman does and the level of preparedness I had the chance when Don uh, very graciously got me in for a sound check at one of the Nashville gigs. I got to stand next to John Fishman. I was 20 feet away from Fishman, who was practicing the wedge for about 10 straight minutes. And he sounded amazing, but I was watching him. He was like working on the articulations, on getting the exact sound that he was looking for out of each of those toms of the, I mean, it was, it was incredible watching him work and the level of detail and the intensity. And I have not only been practicing for three and a half decades, but I have also taught hundreds of students how to practice. And it was a masterclass on practicing and on preparedness. And I don't even remember if they played the wedge that night, but he did not need to be practicing that that night to sound amazing on it. However, if you don't practice like that all the time, then at some point, you need to have been practicing it, but he has been a maniacal practicer his entire career as a drummer, and uh, and and all of this amazingly complex stuff. They call up. They have hundreds. How many songs are there now in the Fish repertoire? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs, and they can call anything. And Fishman, when he makes a mistake with anything composed, even when it's really complicated. Like it stands out like a sore thumb because he never misses because he's that prepared all of the time. And he is the real reason why they can do all of this stuff and make it sound so effortless. And if Trey were on this call, he would say, hell yeah. (laughs) Right now, he'd probably use stronger language as he's publicly done many times. Fishman is the straw that stirs the drink. I notice about John Fishman is his fluidity and it's subtle. He can move it around wherever he needs, wherever the band needs him to go. And um, and a piece like Foam that that really 
is, is showcased. He's so sensitive to things. I mean, that's sort of Fish's middle name is sensitivity. He has more instruments in his in his rack than everybody else does, you know. So he's got to be a little more sensitive and a little more subtle than everybody else. I think if somebody wants to go some other place in a jam, he's the one that fulfills that that notion, right? I think it's incredibly noteworthy and impressive that songs that they wrote so early in their career ended up being the ones that took them to some of the highest mountaintops of their career in 94 and in 95. And that's not surprising or impressive or noteworthy for most bands. I think I can say most because a lot of them will get some hits and then they just play those for the entire rest of their career. But with how much change Fish underwent in terms of their writing, their jamming style, just their performances, their set list construction, everything from when we're talking here, like, you know, mid 80s through 94, 95, the fact that these songs were, uh, were good enough that it kept their interest. I mean that that these if these weren't if these were just complex songs then I have a feeling that they would have gone by the wayside and would have been the kind of thing where they would get thrown out as a rarity every once in a while for like a, a special highlight on a set list but these withstood the test of time for a long time and the, this was a very different band in 94 95 than it was in 86 87 and yet these songs stood the test of time which i think is a, a testament to to the the strength of their early writing Fish's early compositions, which would form the basis for their debut album, Junta. Songs like Divided Sky, You Enjoy Myself, and Foam became the roots of their musical personality. But these songs weren't the only foundation for their growth. There was a mythology there, something that started and grew to include even more songs, but that told a story of revenge, murder, intrigue, and of course, lizards. Next week, my co-hosts RJB, Jonathan Hart, Matt Dwyer, and Brad Tenbrook will take us to the land of darkness, the land of doom. We're going to dive into the music, the mythology, and the ongoing mystery of the man who stepped into yesterday. We'll look at the impact of Trey's senior thesis about the land of Gamehenge and talk about the first live performance in full from 1988. We'll also look at Fish's growing ambitions, their first pushes outside of New England, and what we've learned from the shows in 1987 and 1988. 
Join us next week as we continue to pursue the ancient secrets of eternal joy and never-ending splendor. Thanks so much to everyone who's been listening to Undermine for the last couple of weeks. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. We've really enjoyed making this for everyone here. Wanted to give a quick update and announce our winner of our Twitter contest. As you all know out there, we've alternated our meager flock, and we're so glad you made the leap with us. To kick off Undermine Pod on social media, we held a follower contest. The first 1,983 followers, all in honor of Fish's start in 1983, were entered to win handwritten lyrics from our very own Tom Marshall. And now, to announce our Undermine Pod contest winner, at Amethyst Amy. Amethyst Amy from Twitter. Congratulations, Amy. We'll be in touch for contact info. Stick around, everyone out there, for more fun prizes and surprises. There's always something more than this. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. And a very special thank you to Don Hart and Drew Hitz for sharing their perspective, their expertise, and their enthusiasm. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OsirisPod. We'll see you next week. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that, uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.